Let's turn our attention now to the Word of God. Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Yesterday, a headline popped on, up on my phone. I don't know if you guys have uh, an iPhone, but I get, I get notifications all the time from various news outlets. And yesterday, I received one from the Wall Street Journal. And the title of the article was, Toxic Positivity is Very Real and Very Annoying. The, the article was one that I couldn't read without paying for, so I admit that I only read the very opening paragraph. But what I could tell from the article was it was seeking to demonize people who were trying to find the good in every situation or who were okay even though the world around them was crumbling. Let me be very clear, this is a very unchristian idea, the idea of toxic positivity. We as believers have a reason to have strength and a reason to have joy in every single situation. Why? Because our greatest need has already been met at the cross. We have every reason for positivity because of what Christ has done for us. So over the past few weeks, we've jumped ahead and we've gone all the way to chapter 3 in 1 Timothy so that we could focus on the biblical office of deacon since we're going to be voting on those here this coming Wednesday. But now what we're going to do is uh, we're going to jump back into 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I'm really thankful for that because we're going to drill down into some of the nuts and bolts of how God designed not only the church to operate, but we as Christians to operate, how we should think. What better way to kick off this month, this month of thanksgiving, than with a text that is all about giving thanks? In these verses that we're about to read, we are going to hear that Paul thanks the Lord for something. In particular, the most important thing. He thanks God for saving him. And the way that Paul goes about this is by reminding Timothy of exactly what, Paul, what God did in Paul's life to bring him to salvation. So please follow along in your own copy of the scriptures as we hear from Paul from ages long past as he shares his testimony with us today. He writes, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's now ask the Lord's blessing on this word. Father, we do acknowledge that you are the immortal, invisible, only God. And today, as we come before you, we thank you for this example of Paul's testimony. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear it and to be reminded of your grace and to relish in it. And God, I pray that we would be showered with your grace as you lead us through this text this morning. And I ask, God, that you would give me clarity as I speak and that you would give clarity to the ears of all those who are hearing today that we might put into practice what we learn. God, I pray that our hearts would be renewed in the love of Jesus Christ because of what we are reading. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
A moment ago, I mentioned that we are going to have a special Thanksgiving service on the 23rd of November. Just to be clear, that's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. But what I did not tell you is that at that gathering, we're going to hear eight testimonies of God's saving grace. And we're going to listen to people share exactly how and exactly when God sought them out and saved them. Testimonies of salvation are one of the most glorious ways that we as God's people can delight in the work of the Lord. Every single saved sinner is a trophy of God's grace, and there is nothing that should delight the heart of God's people more than seeing the light of his grace transform a lost soul. Paul never got over his testimony of salvation. We read about how radically God transformed him in the book of Acts, chapter 9, but then we also later in that same book hear him in his own words share his testimony in Acts chapter 22 and again in Acts chapter 26. And not only that, he also shares his testimony in the book of Romans and again in the book of 1 Corinthians and again in the book of Galatians and twice in the small book of Philippians and again here in 1 Timothy. Not to mention the myriad of short references to God's grace in his life that are not accompanied by the full story. Every Christian should become a master of sharing their story of salvation. Every Christian should know how to express that to anyone who is around them. Whether you are a master storyteller and an excellent public speaker, or whether you have difficulty communicating and are terrified in front of a crowd, that doesn't matter. You should be able to say what Christ has done for you. You should be able to recount what Jesus has done to save you, exactly as Paul does here in this chapter. So what we're going to do with this text is allow this to serve as a model for how we are to share our testimony with others. Let's consider seven points of Paul's testimony and how that should shape our own. First, when you are sharing your testimony, give thanks. Verse 12 begins by saying, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. When you speak of what Christ has done for you, the underlying attitude should always be gratitude. Be sure that you are crystal clear. It is God who has done this work, not me. He gets all of the credit. He gets all of the praise. He is worthy of all glory. All I brought to the table was my sin. Everything else was the work of Christ and Christ alone. By opening his testimony of salvation with this kind of a thankful heart, it reveals that Paul is not in any way speaking to Timothy out of some kind of earthly superiority. Look, kid, I'm older, I'm smarter, I'm wiser, therefore what I'm about to tell you, I want you to listen up. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Timothy, I want you to remember what Christ has done for me. I want you to remember that I, just like you, was brought out of slavery to sin. He reminds Timothy that Jesus Christ Our Lord is the one who is responsible for doing this work in his life, and he gives thanks for appointing him, Paul, to the ministry. So when you consider sharing your testimony, when you think of how to speak to others, be sure that you are giving all thanks, giving all credit to God, for he has done what you could never do. He redeemed you from the pit. The second thing to see that Paul does here that we should emulate is to contextualize Why are you telling the story right now? Why are you actually explaining it in this setting? How does this fit into the conversation you're already having? Now, as a pastor, I realize that I repeat things often. I have little sayings, and I say them all of the time. 
Sometimes I repeat things because I forget that I've said them before. And sometimes I repeat things because I want you to remember them. But with all of the times that Paul shared his testimony, I guarantee you that Timothy knew it. I guarantee you that Timothy had it memorized. I guarantee you that after traveling around with Paul and going from place to place to place and listening to Paul teach and going from house to house, listening to Paul share his testimony, Timothy could have said it probably as well as Paul could have. He knew every detail. Yet, even so, Paul tells the story again. Paul reminds him once again, do you remember that God saved me. But why does he do that? Why does he say this right now? Why is he reminding Timothy of his testimony of salvation at this point in the book? Because he is telling Timothy, this is what helps me, and this is the one thing that can help you carry on in the ministry. This is the one thing that can help you carry on in the Christian life. The gospel is not something that just brings you into the door or brings you to the family of God and is then to be discarded as unnecessary. The gospel is the ongoing power of God that produces joy in you and strength in you. As we work our way through the book of 1 Timothy, you're going to see both the timidity of Timothy as well as the great challenge that was put up against him in his church. Timothy needed strength. He needed help. And Paul is modeling for Timothy exactly where that strength is found. He says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength. Now, what you're going to see next time we are in 1 Timothy is you're going to hear about how Paul encourages Timothy to rely on his own testimony for that point. Timothy, you've been appointed to service, but you need strength. Timothy, where are you going to get that strength? Timothy, how are you going to carry on? Notice, Paul is not sharing his testimony to an unbeliever. He is sharing his testimony with somebody who already knows the Lord, with somebody to whom he says, Christ Jesus, our Lord, the Lord that we share. He is not saying this just to get someone saved. He is saying this to be an encouragement to someone who is already a brother in Christ. This testimony was given so that he could remind his young friend that the gospel is of first importance. So when's the right time to share your story of salvation? Well, often. Often is the right time to share what Christ has done for you. Whether you're speaking to saved people or to unsaved people, remind them of what Christ has done for you. I think one of the reasons that we are so bad at evangelism here in our church and in our culture is that we have lost the art of telling others what Christ has done for us in short, simple, and contextually sensible ways. When somebody comes to you for advice, don't just act as though you are the pinnacle of wisdom and therefore you have everything that they need so they should view you as some kind of a guru that they can come to and they should view you as some kind of a master and you have the wisdom that they need. No, you tell them, look, I was a fool And God saved me. Any wisdom that I have comes from him and through his word. If somebody comes to you that is hurting and needs comfort, tell them, listen, I would love to help you. I will hug you. I will cry with you. I will do whatever I can to help you. But you need to know that the only comfort I have in life and death is Christ Jesus, my Lord, who saved me from the pit of hell. If somebody is struggling with sin, share how Christ has allowed you to die to sin and live to righteousness. You don't have to be a robust theologian to do this. You don't have to have some kind of a masterful vocabulary to do this. You just have to look for opportunities to do this. 
Find the best ways to use your story in the context of real-life relationships with other people that you really know, and the overwhelming majority of the times that you tell your story are not going to be up here in front of a microphone. It is going to be when you are sitting at your kitchen table or by a hospital bed or tying your child's shoes for the thousandth time. The gospel has to change you. That is what the gospel does. It changes all of you, the entire you. It is the comprehensive cure, and what that means is it is always relevant in all of our relationships and in our conversations with friends and family and our colleagues. So when you are dealing with real-life stuff, bring your story of how God has worked in you to bear on those around you. The third thing we see about Paul's testimony and what we can emulate from him is that we are supposed to describe the old you. Verse 13 says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I want you to see that he presents the real him. Not the pretend version of him that everybody else saw, but the real him. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, he tells us that in relation to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Yet here, he tells them, I was a blasphemer. Blasphemy was considered the pinnacle sin, the chief sin, the worst sin by the Jewish people. Blasphemy was the charge that was levied against Christ himself that caused him to be crucified at the cross. The Pharisees didn't see Paul as a blasphemer. In their eyes, he was, prior to Christ, blameless. Yet, he humbly confesses here that his heart towards the Lord was filled with blasphemy. He also reminds Timothy of his violent aggression against the people of God. He persecuted the church. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, he explains it this way. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. In Acts chapter 22, verse 4, he further explains that this hatred of the people of God caused him to go as far as actually having Christians put to death. Paul says, I persecuted this way, meaning the Christians, to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women. So he probably never was the one that pulled the trigger, but he was certainly involved in the death process of those who stood for Christ. This was not just a cold calculating law enforcement, though. This was venomous rage being played out in his enemies. When Paul uses this term insolent opponent in verse 13, it informs us that this was not just following the law. This was actually abuse that he enjoyed inflicting. Acts chapter 9 verse 1 describes Paul's attitude this way, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. Most likely, Paul's outward appearance was very stoic and reserved. When he went to the high priest, he probably wasn't fuming and red. He was probably very stoic. Can I please have the documents necessary to go to Damascus and arrest all those Christians. But what he tells us here, what Luke reveals to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that underneath of whatever his demeanor might have been, he was filled with fury and murderous rage, so much so that his every breath was filled with the desire to kill another Christian. He was an insolent opponent. The word that is used here, translated as insolent opponent, means one who derives pleasure from inflicting suffering on other people. In his commentary, Thomas Lee refers to this word as being a violent bully. You remember, you may have had a bully. I certainly had a bully. 
That bully loved tormenting you. He loved punishing you. He loved harming you. If you've ever had a bully, you know what I mean. He's calling himself that kind of bully, but one that was not just going to harm your external physical body for a moment, one that was going to seek to take your very life. Paul says, this is who I was. He doesn't hold back when confessing his wickedness. He acknowledges that he was absolutely vile. But also notice that Paul does not linger on the details, nor does he glorify his sin. He doesn't make it sound enticing. He doesn't try to make his pre-Christian self sound cool. Perhaps you've heard a testimony before where the person shared extensively about their sin, even to the extent that it sounded like they were proud of the mountain of evil that they had done before coming to the Lord. Recently, I read a biography of a man who got saved after a lifetime of debauchery, and I kept waiting for the moment when I would hear him turn to Christ and see that he was forgiven of these sins. But I was saddened when the transforming work of the Lord was only given about two pages at the end of a 320-page book. When you share your story, be open about your sin. Be clear and honest about who you were, but also in a way that does not glorify your sin and in a way that gives all glory to God. How do we do that? Well, the fourth thing we're going to see helps us understand it. We are to highlight the grace and mercy of God and how it arrived to you in your life. The rest of verse 13 and verse 14 read, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed from me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul summarized his conversion experience here in 1 Timothy. He summarizes it and eliminates some of the factual details because Timothy already knows his story so well. When Paul tells this story in other places, though, like Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, two people who have never yet heard it, this portion of the testimony is where he details his trip to Damascus and about his encounter with Jesus and how he was blinded and about how he was later healed and about how Ananias came to him and shared the gospel with him. His goal here in speaking of Timothy is to remind Timothy what he already knew. So, what does Paul hammer home? Mercy and grace. Timothy, remember, mercy and grace. What is the difference between these two things? Well, there's a lot of people who have speculated on how to express this well, but there does seem to be a subtle distinction in the Scripture, and I think I agree with John MacArthur the way he explains it in his commentary. He says, quote, Mercy differs from grace in that grace removes guilt while mercy takes away the misery caused by sin. So you could think about it this way. It is possible for God to show mercy to people without showing grace to people. For example, when God would spare the nation of Israel from destruction of an invading army. Now, why did this army come to be invading the nation of Israel? Because God raised them up and because God sent them. Why did he do that? Because the nation of Israel was disobedient and had broken the covenant. And so, God was right in sending this army. And God had every right to wipe them off of the face of the earth. earth. But he does not. And why not? Because he would show them mercy. That did not mean that they were no longer guilty. It simply meant that he took away the misery that was the result of their sin. But not the guilt. However, if God gives you grace and he takes away your guilt, mercy is always a happy companion. You are always set free from the punishment that you justly deserve. That is why it is accurate for every Christian to speak about how they have been shown both grace and mercy. 
Some people have misunderstood this verse here to say that the reason some people are forgiven of their sin is because they were unaware of their offensiveness to God. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know it was a sin, is what some people will understand this to mean. Therefore, since I didn't know it was a sin, God didn't punish me for it. Instead, he gave me mercy. Now, it's really important to get this concept correct because that is not what Paul is saying. And there are two main problems with this kind of reading of the verse. The first one is that sometimes people break one of the most basic and simple rules of logic, which is read the whole sentence. Read the entirety of the sentence. And notice that the second part of the sentence is saying that in spite of his ignorance and unbelief, God still overflowed with grace. The second and main way that people get confused is that they will correlate ignorance with innocence. A few weeks ago, I told you about how I had been pulled over and received a ticket when I first moved to New York for speaking on my cell phone while I was driving. And I tried to explain to the officer, I did not know this was the law, because where I come from, this is not the law. But he still gave me the ticket, and he was justified in doing so. Why? Because regardless of my ignorance of the law, I still broke the law. My ignorance did not equal my innocence. Now, I realize that I have told you now in the last six months two stories about getting uh, tickets, one about on the phone and one speeding. I want you to know those are like the only tickets I've gotten in the last 15 years of my life. So please don't think that that's common. And, but notice that Paul is certainly not trying to say that he's innocent. He had already detailed his sin, and later on he's going to call himself the chief of sinners. So it's clear that he is not trying to somehow absolve himself as innocent. Also, it's clear throughout the scriptures that unbelief itself is a sin. For example, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 puts it this way, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Unbelief is a sin. Therefore, if he says, in ignorance and unbelief, it is not some kind of a way to say, I do not have sin. And God showed mercy because I was somehow better than those people who knew what they were doing. In other words, Paul is not trying to downplay his sin, nor is he trying to say that his ignorance gave him special favor. I like how Phil Riken says it in his commentary. He says, This does not mean that Paul's ignorance and unbelief somehow qualified him for salvation or made his actions any less sinful. He was still guilty. God never excuses sin because of mitigating circumstances. Nevertheless... God had pity on Paul's desperate spiritual condition, his ignorance, and his unbelief, and the man received mercy because God is merciful. In short, Paul was making the case that he was far away from God in ignorance and unbelief. This is not meant to say that he is somehow closer to God because of those things, but he was farther from God because of those things. Yet, God's mercy is more. And not only that, he adds that the grace of our Lord overflowed to him and brought along with it the gift of faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The word here for overflowed is likely a word that Paul invented himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we see words in the New Testament that seem to have arrived from nowhere else in ancient literature. He just pinned them himself. And the way that he does that usually is combining two existing words to make a new meaning. And here that's what we see happening. He combines two words, one which is the word for something to abound, and the second one is the word hooper, which is where we get two of our English words, which are hyper and super. One comes through it through Latin, one comes through it through English. But regardless, we get both of these words 
in our language that help us understand it's not that grace just abounds to us. It hyper-abounds to us. It superflows to us. It is overwhelming in its response to our sin. Like Romans chapter 5, verse 20 says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There was no competition. I love how it is said in John chapter 1, verse 16, For from his fullness, speaking of Jesus, we have all received grace upon grace, this stacking level of grace being set one upon another in our lives. When you share your story of salvation, speak about how the gospel message came to you. Share the details. Tell what it looked like, when that happened, who told you the story of the gospel, what verse caused you to hear him. Share the specifics about your ignorance of God and your unbelief in God, but highlight with every ounce of passion that you have that the mountain of your sin was completely submerged in the ocean of God's grace and that the fiery penalty that you deserved was fully quenched by the soothing mercy of God. The details of your story are going to be unique. No two Christians ever have the same exact circumstances through which they come to Christ. We are all coming out of specific sins. We are all coming through particular trials. Yet, we all come through the same door, so our stories all converge at the cross of Jesus Christ. Speak clearly about the grace and mercy that you have been shown in your specific sin circumstances. But the fifth thing that we see here from Paul that we should be doing when we share our testimony and that he does so perfectly well is clearly, clearly, clearly state the gospel. There is a special phrase that we find five times in the pastoral epistles that are, it's not found anywhere else in the Bible. By pastoral epistles, I mean 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. Those are the three letters that were written specifically to pastors. And in these letters, we find this little phrase that says, the saying is trustworthy. And in two of those places, he adds the little phrase, and deserving of full acceptance. That's how Paul begins verse 15. Likely, this means that Paul was probably not writing this for the first time. Either he had said it many times and people had begun repeating it, or this is something that other people had begun using as a formula to explain the gospel, and he is adopting that and he is putting that into his regular form of preaching. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he adopts this and says all Christians for all time should adopt it as well. This saying is trustworthy, and deserving of full acceptance. That means for you, Christian, this saying is trustworthy and you should accept it. The difficulty here with the saying that he is uh, to wonder where does the quote actually stop and when does the commentary of Paul actually begin? The answer to that, to that question actually slightly changes the way that we perceive what Paul is saying and I'm honestly not sure which way is correct and the smart guys that I've been reading from also don't agree on this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to present two options to you and I'm going to explain them and show you how they slightly differ. But before we do, let's examine the uncontested part of the saying. This is the part that he is certainly saying is trustworthy and worthy of acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This phrase is only eight Greek words, but it contains such a potent explanation of the gospel. It explains that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Covenant. He is the one who was coming to redeem his people from their sins. And it tells us that he came into the world. 
That means that he existed both before and outside of our world, and that unlike any of us or anyone else who has ever been born, he had both a purpose and a plan for being born here. And when it says that he came into the world, it's more than just saying that he came into the planet Earth. The word world is being used to represent, represent a system of people that have rejected God and have rebelled against him. It is to people like that whom Jesus has come. People like us who have run from him. It is to us that Jesus has come. And what was his purpose? His purpose was to save sinners. His purpose was to save sinners. Now, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you need to know this truth. You are a sinner, but he is a good Savior. And he came here to save sinners like you. Whether you perceive yourself to be the worst of the worst or the best of the best, you are a sinner. And he came here to save sinners like you. Run to Jesus who has died on the cross to pay your sin debt. Run to Jesus and bow to Jesus who rules as the Lord over all the universe. For he is a good Savior who came to save sinners. So the question is, is that where the saying is supposed to stop? Or does the saying include the statement of whom I am the foremost? In other words, is Paul saying that all people should view themselves as the chief sinner? Or is Paul saying that he himself is the chief sinner, worse than anyone else who ever has or ever will live? Now, linguistically, both of these options are possible. On the one hand, Paul certainly sees his violence of the church as a cause to be considered the lowest of all. For example, consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. If he is the worst of all sinners, the chief of all sinners, it's because at its infancy, he was seeking to destroy the very church that Christ came to give birth to. But this point is possibly bolstered by the fact that in verse 16 he adds, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That little phrase, as the foremost, may be a reference to him specifically being the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst, the most wicked sinner of all time. That's possible. Or it might mean that he, as the one who is most seen, the one who at this time in history is the most observed by all around him, who he was the enemy of the church and who is now redeemed. It's possible either way. However, this could still be part of the saying that Paul was quoting, and it's possible that Paul is encouraging every believer to realize that their sin is horrendously vile before the Lord. And trust me, the longer you know the Lord, the more you're going to see your sin for what it is. This happens to every Christian. This happens to me. I know much more that I am a sinner. I am more cognitive of my sin now than I was when I was saved. Even the dark and hidden recesses of your mind are laid bare eventually before the Lord, and your ways are known to him. As you grow in Christ, the more aware you should become, the more you should become aware of his perfect righteousness and your imperfect sin. I have a pastor that I, I once had. Uh, he was my pastor in Indiana when I served at the church there. Um, this friend of mine, he was in the military for many years before he became a pastor. And he one time told me a, a story about how when he was in, I think, basic training, he and his friends had to do a spot check of their clothing to make sure that they were not wrinkled, they didn't have dirt on them or dust on them. And so they were inside of their tent, and he and some of his friends checked each other and, like, you know, cleaned each other off a little bit to make sure that they were ready to go. And then they went outside of the tent and into the sunlight, and their drill sergeant failed all of them. 
Why? Because they checked their clothes in a dark tent instead of doing it in the light where they could see all of the dirt clearly. They didn't know how dirty they were, and when you got saved, you did not know how dirty you were. God continues to clean and work through sanctifying processes in your life to clean you up. You are always just before God if you are a Christian. He has taken care of every sin to the uttermost. You will never again have to worry about the penalty of your sin because it has been paid. But you continue to grow and become closer to him as he works in your life. I think possibly what Paul is saying here is he's saying you need to see you are covered in dirt. And you need to see the light of Christ displaying that to you. You are the chief sinner. It's possible that that's what he is getting at here. The point is that every single one of us remains a sinner in need of God's ongoing grace. So even if Paul is saying, I am the chief of sinners, then we are all close behind him in that unenviable race. So when you share your story, be sure not to overlook that Christ came into the world to save sinners, even a sinner like you. Be sure that you are clearly presenting the gospel in such a way that somebody who has never before heard it would understand the necessary information to be saved. Share the gospel when you share your testimony. The sixth thing that we can learn here from Paul's testimony is to let your story serve as an invitation. Look with me again to verse 16. Paul says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Why did God save Paul? Why did God save you? Now look, there's a lot of right answers to those questions. There's a lot of accurate answers that could be given. But the simple answer is, for his glory. God did this so that he would be glorified. But you are also to see here that When God saves you, he does so because you are a strategic vessel for him in the hands of a master planner. He is working through you to carry out his eternal plan. And God explains that he was using Paul to display how magnificent and how perfect his patience was so that sinners could see Paul and say, if God can save that guy, God can save me. When you share your testimony, you should be able to say, look, God could save me, he can save you too. Make your testimony an invitation. When you share your story that, to people that don't know the Lord, or when you ponder it in your heart, be aware that God purposes in your salvation to do something far beyond just your salvation. He is doing something to save you, but also to work in the lives of many others. You are the way that God intends to display himself to other people. You are the lighthouse that he has placed at your job or your school. And your story might be the tool that God will use to bring other people to salvation in Jesus Christ. The last thing I want to point out here that we can draw from from Paul's testimony of saving grace is the idea of doxology. Doxology is just that explosion of worship that comes from the heart of a believer when they see God clearly. There are occasions in Paul's writings where he will just shift into a moment of doxological exaltation. It's like he says to Timothy, okay, Timothy, just just hold on a minute. And then he turns his eyes to heaven and he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When you communicate your testimony, does it cause that kind of worship to well up in your soul? Or have you gotten so used to the idea that you're saved? That when you tell your story, there is nothing. There is no joy. There is no delight. There is no awe. There is no reverence. There is no worship 
that is produced. When Paul shared his testimony here, it is probably the 10,000th time that he is telling his story. And how does it produce anything in him? I am a vile sinner. I am the chief of sinners. Yet look what Christ has done for me. And all he can do to respond is say, to this God be glory. To this God be glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice he calls God the king of the ages. Probably a reference to the two Jewish ages being the age that was and the age to come. And then he cherry picks just certain attributes or characteristics of God that remind us that he is not like us. He is immortal, meaning that he has always existed and he will always exist and there is nothing that could threaten that existence. He is invisible, speaking of God the Father, that he is spirit and is unseen by human eyes. And he reminds us that he is the only God and therefore he is the only one who should receive honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Christian, your testimony is one of the greatest tools that God has given to you. Know your story well. Be ready in season and out of season. Prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And let your own story remind of the height and the breadth of God's love so that he might have the glory and so that you might respond with exuberant delight in this immortal, invisible God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this incredible story of Paul's salvation. Lord, I pray that even though probably everybody in here has known Paul's story of salvation well, that we would along with him delight in that we would exalt in you, that we would declare you are good because you show grace and mercy even to the chief of sinners. God, I pray that everyone in this room who has been saved by you would acknowledge and realize that they themselves are vile and greatly depraved, yet even in their sin and rebellion, you showed mercy and grace. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in you, that we would have a response of doxology like Paul did here to worship the magnanimous grace of Jesus Christ, the one that hyperabounds, that superabounds to us. We pray that in the precious name of our Lord who has saved us by his blood. Amen.